So I want to talk today, start a new series of things over the next several weeks. And the topic or the title of the series is, why do you do that? Have you ever wondered that about some things? Why, why do you do that? Uh, maybe the best story I've, I've read was a, a mom was teaching her daughter how to cook. And one of the things as the daughter was about to get married, you know, kind of here's a nice Sunday roast that we cook. And she got the roast out, and the first thing the mom did was trimmed both ends off the roast. And the daughter said, Mom, why, why do you do that? That looks like a lot of good meat that you're just throwing away. She says, well, I don't know, but my mom always trimmed the ends off the roast. So, well, I'm going to ask Grandma, because surely she knows why. So she was over at Grandma's house. She said, oh, Grandma, listen, um, Mom was teaching me how to cook, and she had the roast out, and the first thing she did was trim the ends off the roast. Why do you? Do you trim the ends? She said she learned to hear me. Why do you trim the ends off the roast? She said, well, you, you know, I don't know. I guess I trim them because my mom always trimmed the ends off the roast. And, you know, one of those multi-generational families, great-grandma was still around. And she was sitting at the table, and she said, Mom, why did you trim the ends off the roast when you cook it? She said, because my pan was too short. For four generations, perfectly good cow thrown out. There you go. And, and that's the way I think people might perceive we here in church world, as I like to call it. You come and we do certain things, and maybe you wonder, well, why do they do that? But it's church world, so you can't ask that question, right? But we're going to try to answer that over the next several weeks, and I don't know if I'm going to hit everything. I do want to say this. I'd love to know though I reserve the right to say, I don't know. If there's something about church world here that you wonder, why do you do that? So send me an email, text me, call the office and say, hey, have him one Sunday explain this, because that don't make no sense to me. Okay, I know I just opened myself up to all sorts of things. <laughs> but uh, we'll do that. So, so I have some ideas about some things we'll talk about over the next several weeks. Um, but if you have something that you would like us to talk about, uh, do that. Because here's what I hope we'll discover as we go through this together. Why we do things ultimately should be grounded in the things God, through His Word, tells us we should be about doing. Now, I know there's tradition. I know there's habit. I know there's some things that, by just the fact that there's repetition. there. You know, Sunday comes every seven days. I don't know if you realize that. And there's some things you got to get ready because Sunday's coming. Um, and so there's some of that, but there are some things that we want to look at that we want to honestly say, why biblically is that part of what we do? For instance, we'll talk over the next several weeks, one Sunday, maybe half of a Sunday, about why do we sing? You know, even the song, Ever Be, that we sang a few minutes ago, and this is why I sing. Maybe you thought, well, they say that, but I still don't know why we sing, except they put the words on the, mu- on the screen, and these people stand up here play instruments. That must be why we sing. No, there's... there's some reasons for that. You might wonder, why every time I go to church do they ask for my money? <laughs> they do it politely. They don't like come up to me and say, hey, give me your money. They pass this wooden felt-lined plate. Looks real nice. I've seen lots of churches have these. Why do they pass that? Why do, they ta- why do we take up an offering? You might wonder. Hey, why is there a sermon? Great question. <laughs> a little too enthusiastic there, Jim. <laughs> You know, so we'll talk about those things, but today's topic is, I don't know if it's the big one or the small one, why do we even come to church? 
You know what we did? We made church 9 o'clock. That's doggone early. Have you noticed some weeks? Have you felt that? It's a little early sometimes. Like, I wish, especially on a cold morning. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, I understand. Sunday morning, maybe it's one of the few days of the week you don't have anything going on, you don't have to go anywhere, and then that church thing happens. And you wonder, well, hmm, why do we go to church? Now, I'm not going to why do we go at 9 o'clock if you want to know? That's easy. It was a practical thing. We used to have two services, one at 8.30 and one at 11. And the 8.30 service always had a bigger crowd than the 11 o'clock. And so we picked a time. We were going to pick 8.30, and 8.30 was, you thought 9 was early. So we, we, we gave you an extra half hour. You're welcome to come at 9. But why do we come to church? Why do we gather together as people? Because there's a backlash, I think, and maybe you've had conversations with folks and heard these kind of ideas that we don't have to go to church to worship God. You know, that's absolutely true. You don't have to. In fact, if the only time you worship God is when you come to church, that's another sermon. We got, we got, we got some things to talk about there. <laughs> but is there something about this dynamic that's important? Now, if I were to ask, hey, what are some verses that come to mind? I would guess somebody here would probably point to Hebrews 10.25, which says something to the effect of, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? It's like a, we come to church because we're supposed to. It's a command of God, right? Well, we're going to do this today. I know you're so excited you can hardly stand it. We are going to actually look at that verse, but look at what comes before it. Look at why the writer of Hebrews uses that encouragement, uses that language to tell us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Because in our world, there are some that say, you know, church isn't really my thing. In fact, uh, there's, there's one Christian author you may be familiar with. His name is uh, Donald Miller. His probably most famous book is Blue Like Jazz. He also wrote Searching for God Knows What and several other books. Um, he wrote, a blog post, uh, probably a couple years ago now, basically saying, this is why I don't come to church, because I don't like to sing, and I don't learn by lecture. So church doesn't work for me. I encounter God in my work and different things. It was a very interesting um, post to, to think about, but it also gets you thinking, well, is that really why we come to church, that it's supposed to fit our learning style? And, and he talks about learning styles and like, and I think there's more to it than that. And the author of Hebrews kind of lays that out for us, I believe, in this passage. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be. We're going to jump in a little bit later in, in chapter, like I said, verse 25 is where we get that, that command of, of everything, but we're going to start in verse 19. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he starts out with this word, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, let's stop right there. So he's telling us from the outset of this paragraph, here's my conclusion based on everything I've just said. That's kind of what therefore means. Um, in fact, I've used this phrase before. If you've been around, my seminary professor used to say, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should ask what the therefore is. Therefore. It's telling you, hey, I've made an argument. And based on that argument, I'm going forward. And he kind of summarizes the argument there. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. What had come before? Really, the book of Hebrews is a fascinating book because it's written from the perspective and to an audience of Jewish believers. 
and the nation of Israel has a very elaborate worship system centered around, at the height of the the kingdom of Israel, the temple. And everything that Israel did went toward somehow the sacrificial system centered in the temple. Uh, And and even today, we know on our calendar, you'll have the the Hebrew holidays mark, the high holy days. We just came out of them in the fall, in October. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, maybe one of the holiest days in all of Israel's year. And on that Day of Atonement, the the scriptures told Israel at the temple that that would be the day when the people would gather and atonement would be made for their sins. And it it was a very particular and elaborate day of celebration and worship. And it was the only day of the entire year where the Jewish high priest was allowed to go into the innermost part of the temple, the innermost sanctum. It was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. It was the place that was behind this heavy curtain that the Old Testament outlined everything about its makeup and its size and its thickness. Behind that curtain sat the Ark of the Covenant on top of the altar, and the the mercy seat was on top of it with the angels reaching across. That was the place. And for Israel, the glory of God, often called the Shekinah glory of God, was seated on top of the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. No one could go in there except on this one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the highest and holiest day in Israel's history, when that one man went behind the curtain. So that was their experience. Now, that wasn't the only thing that happened that day. They also had two sacrificial goats, one that was killed and the other that was the scapegoat that ceremonially the high priest laid the sins of all of Israel on and it was released into the wilderness. And on this day, all of these things happened. They looked to it and it was understood that because that was the only day that there was something other about God, that there was something separate about God, that he was, we might even say, somewhat unapproachable. In fact, as as tradition would tell us as the high priest would go into the holy of holies he would often go in with a rope around his waist many of you have probably heard this account and the the uh the garment of the high priest had many decorations including bells along its hem now what happens is when you're the high priest and you got the rope around your waist and you go behind the curtain as you're walking you hear the tinkling of bells but before you go behind the curtain there is an elaborate ritual of washings and sacrifice the high priest has to make for himself lest he go before the very glory of God without properly making atonement for his own sins and were he to go before God the holy God not following the ritual right the punishment would have been death and when the high priest entered behind the curtain without doing what was to be done and died the bells stopped ringing and the other priests pulled him out and I've always said I don't want to be high priest number two right that's not the job I want four or five is great because I want to be next but that's what would happen I mean this was serious stuff and so here the writer of Hebrews has described some of that in the preceding verses but said listen you know by its very nature that wasn't adequate Because every year you had to do it over and over again. It didn't really work. It wasn't completely effective. And what has happened in Jesus is he has come 
and not entered into that holy of holies in a physical sanctuary, a physical temple that was built, but into an unseen temple not made by hands. And it wasn't by the blood of bulls and goats that he went in and the sacrifices made, but it was by the shedding of his own blood that he went into the holiest place and made atonement. And here's a great phrase, once for all. That he didn't have to do it again and again and again every year. And there weren't these sacrifices that had to be made even daily at the temple. No, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world, went behind that veil, offered his own blood on the mercy seat. And one of the things that the account of the crucifixion tells us is that as Jesus is dying, the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that that barrier which stood between a holy God and His people was no longer there because Jesus had made a way. So we can now have confidence to enter the most holy place. We don't have to put the rope on our waist and do all the sacrifices and have the bells just in case we die and have to be pulled out. No, we have confidence to go into the very presence of God by not the blood of bulls and goats, but because of what Jesus has done. That's the confidence we have. He goes on in the next verse, uh, verse 20, and says this, By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, the curtain torn into the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Jesus did away with that. By his sacrifice, that curtain, his body makes the way for us to go in. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Some of these rituals that happened as part of the Day of Atonement, as part of the sacrificial system, the washings, that were done that large uh, laver that was there that was used for the the sacrificial washings the one the priest used to prepare himself to go behind the veil that was a part of the worship of Israel the idea of the sprinkling of blood one of the things he would do inside the holy of holies is take hyssop and sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal on the holy seat uh, the mercy seat excuse me in the holy of holies as a as a sacrifice as an offering for the sins of the people. That has been accomplished not year after year and only at the temple, but because of what Jesus has done so that our hearts are sprinkled. We are cleansed by that water. He goes on in the next verse and continues to build us. And let us profess unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. So having this background, having now, now we... Well, I think we're mostly Gentiles here, right? No yarmulke, prayer shawls, we're good. I think we're okay. Mostly Gentiles outside of the people of Israel, grafted in, as Scripture would say. We don't have this, this background, this corporate identity of worship centered around the temple, the sacrificial system that we would be familiar with that was our identity. It's the way God revealed to us that we should do that. We come in kind of differently, but for a people whose whole history revolved around God revealing this particular way in which He wanted and commanded them to worship Him, this is 
really got to be a rather shocking break from that tradition to say that is no longer necessary. To say that whole temple system, that daily sacrifice and those annual high holy days, those don't apply anymore. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to go offer the prescribed sacrifices that are mentioned. In fact, God no longer is contained in that building that was the centerpiece of your holiest city and part of your identity as God's chosen people. God's not there anymore. He's not limited in that way. Rather, he's kind of broken from the confines of that place and made by Jesus, the way has been opened. And so while that is really good news and while we can see why he would say hold unswervingly to that hope it brings us to the next two verses which are the issue today why go to church because if that's the case if what jesus has done is to actually undo the whole religious system of israel and to no longer make it necessary to go to church as we might say to go to temple to offer the sacrifices Why bother going there anyway? Why bother getting together with God's people if that whole system is null and void? Verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Anybody ever ridden a horse? Okay, good. Did you use spurs? Anybody ever ridden a horse? That's not very normal, right? I mean, we had horses... Growing up, we didn't put spurs on when we rode. Usually that's reserved for particular uses. You might see it in a racing horse. There might be some sort of spur. What's a spur? It's that little pokey wheel thing on your heel. Have you ever been spurred? Oh, okay. By a sand spur. Ah, uh, yes. The bane of our existence in the sandy Central Florida area, sand spur. You, you, you know, could you imagine... Somebody kicking their heels into you with a pointy round thing. I should have brought one. We could have an example. No. But that's, when I hear spur, that's what I hear. A little, a little prodding, right? Does that make sense? Is that what you kind of hear when you say that? That's, that's the image in my mind that we get here. We need to spur one another on. Why do you need to spur one another on toward love and good deeds? Here's my theory. Sometimes people are annoying. Am I the only one that's noticed that? Should I not say that in church? Is that okay? Should I be more personal? Or has that gone too far already? Sometimes people can do things that get on your nerves. And you don't want to love them. You don't, you don't feel the warm feelings of love for them. Now, sometimes these people are your children. Sometimes these people are your spouse. And you stood in the middle of your family and friends and pledged to love them for better, for worse, but you didn't have that in mind. I mean, you had a lot of things in mind, but not that habit. Sometimes love is not the natural thing that comes out of us toward other people. 
In fact, given our inherent selfishness, love is often the last thing that comes out toward others. First thing toward ourselves, but often the last thing that we want to exhibit toward others. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope that we hold unswervingly to, that through Jesus, the veil has been torn and access has been given to God himself, to the most holy place. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, Scripture tells us elsewhere. And it is, I think, easy to get caught up in that very personal privilege we have. In fact, one of the things that we say as Christians in church world sometimes, we ask people, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, we, a lot of times we equate salvation with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty important, vitally important, to be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. My objection sometimes is to that word personal. And here's why. Particularly as Americans, we already are slightly narcissistic. We already, in our culture, are told to look out for ourselves, to see what's best for us, to do it our way, in the immortal words of a crooner of years ago. We have this kind of ethic to pursue the things that make us happy, that bring us pleasure. And sometimes, that which brings me pleasure can be at the expense of someone else. And anything you do, no matter how good it might make you feel that is at the expense of someone else, is by nature un loving we could even talk about the word love for a minute because we think and we've been told that love is a feeling you feel when it's a feeling you've never felt before you know when you hold her hand and they get sweaty it must be love maybe it's just hot in the room or you know when you're at the movies and you have to stretch and yawn and she doesn't move. Some of you try that in church. I've seen it. And, and your heart beats a little bit faster. The physiological reaction to if one you're attracted to, oh, that's love. It's that feeling. It's that, that sense of, of desire. And unfortunately, when we elevate that definition of love to the forefront... That kind of love pursues that which makes us feel good at the expense, often, of another and therefore is inherently unloving. But God demonstrated his love, Romans 5, 8, for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that tell me? It tells me, a lot of things, 
One thing it tells me is God's kind of love sometimes costs him greatly. That God's kind of love involves great sacrifice. That God's kind of love isn't dependent on the actions of the one loved. In fact, God's kind of love acted when the feelings of the one loved were antithesis of love. While we were yet sinners, while we were living our life with no regard for God in a way that would be against him, God still acted toward us in love. That Christ died. So that we could be forgiven of the very things that we were doing that necessitated the death of Christ and restored to relationship with God and experience His kind of love, which is the opposite often of the way we want to love. So let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love because sometimes our way of looking at love is warped, is wrong, is selfish. And God's way of loving isn't so much how he feels about us, but how he acted toward us. And so what if love is really, this, this phrase, love and good deeds, aren't two separate things, it's really the same. That love, in fact, is embodied by the good deeds we do toward others that's for their good, often involving sacrifice on the part of the one that loves. That's not natural. That's not normal. We don't wake up in the morning and think, how can I give of myself for somebody else? Now, I should say, well, wait a minute, preacher. It's a little bit natural. Okay, you got kids. Would you do things for your kids sacrificially? I, I, you have, right? When, when love like that happens, we begin, I think, to see a little bit in our actions toward our children at times, the love of God toward us. So I'll, I'll grant you that. But see, here's the thing. Your kids, you've got a connection to them, right? God, when he acted toward us, we were living as if he didn't exist, as if he didn't matter, as if there wasn't a God, as if he had no claim on us. And yet he still did it. And that kind of love, if it's not natural, is only going to come to us, sometimes by the example of others. Look around. Look at all these wonderful examples you're surrounded by today. They're out there, by the way. You can learn what it means to love someone else sacrificially by watching the way others do it. And you can be encouraged to act that way. When you see that happen in someone else, you go, wow, that's cool. That is amazing how that person acted. I want to be more like that. Okay, I'm going to tell the story. I wasn't going to talk about it today, but I'm going to talk about it. On Friday, about 1 o'clock, I pulled into the Fort Lauderdale airport and got out and uh, our nephew Stephen and his fiance had been down for the week and so we hugged them and we let them go into the airport but as we were driving in we had heard a siren we didn't know what was going on 
Um, obviously, everybody now knows what's going on, right? Well, we pulled away, thinking it was no big deal. You know, maybe there was a little car accident, and on the way out, we see more law enforcement and fire trucks and ambulances going, and obviously, things snowballed from there. And Steve and his fiance were in the in the airport. They were in Terminal Four. They were far away from everything that happened. But, as you know, mass hysteria can set in, right? And so they were over in Terminal 4, and at one point, as things were escalating and the tensions were high, people heard something. You know, he says, it's amazing what can sound like a gunshot when you know right in that same area somebody's been shot, a luggage, a big piece of luggage falling over on a tile floor. Suddenly, somebody's got a gun and everybody's running. And he, with his fiance found the place, found the closet, got in and hid and barred the door. And talking to him, his thoughts are, how many bullets can I take for her? That's pretty remarkable, huh? Actually, apparently, he found a a, a lady and a, a young child and they were all in the closet together. And that lady's son was a producer at CNN, so at one point he was gonna be on CNN because he helped out, but didn't work out that way. It's probably good, um, you know, because you th- obviously you go through something like that. It's pretty amazing. But, but when he tells that story and that's what you hear, that's remarkable, right? That's like, that's sacrificial love. That's what, I'll lose everything if somebody else is safe. And you hear that and you say, I want to be like that. Or maybe you think, who would I do that for? You know why we need to get together at church? Because we need to be reminded and spurred on toward that kind of love because it's not always natural to us. Because in some of those same situations, people just look out for themselves at the expense of others. And it stands out when somebody does the opposite. So let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, and then verse 25, then the command, then the thing, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Why do we do it? Why do we get together? Yes, because the Bible tells us to. Let us not. It's kind of a commandment there. Let's not give up meeting together. But the reason we do it is because the tendency is, just like for Israel, to say, because of what Jesus has done, I'm good. He's opened the way. I don't need the religious system. I don't need the temple and all of its sacrifice. I don't need to go there anymore. I can go straight to God. You can. Wonderful thing. But when we emphasize the personal relationship with Jesus, as we say, we cut out everybody else. And we become about that which brings us happiness or pleasure or whatever it is in that relationship, even sometimes at the expense of others. But when we get together, we are spurred on. We are encouraged 
to live that kind of life. In this day, I love it, it says, all the more as you see the day, the capital D day, the day, uh, Old Testament, great and terrible day of the Lord. That's fun to say, isn't it? Great because he's going to set right everything that's been wrong. Terrible because some people are going to be on the wrong side. The day approaching, also scripture tells us that as the day approaching, things get worser and worser. I said that wrong on purpose, just for the record. Right? And we look at our, our world and can we say things seem to be getting worse and worse? The movement of our culture, of our world is away from God, not toward him. The movement of our culture is further from him to alienate ourselves from him and his word and his principles and, and all the things that, that he has revealed to us. Yeah, I think that's not a hard argument to make. I mean, we went from, was it the, the Lucy show or was it one of those shows in that era where husband and wife had separate beds to, what am I going to do over here? How about Jersey Shore? You don't watch Jersey Shore? I'm shocked. Not really. You know, but the, the point is, ethically, Jersey Shore, if it was aired in that day, how many X's would they put in front of it? Right? The standards, the morals of our, of our world have changed. And Scripture says, as we see the day approaching, that becomes the norm. And the difficulty for us as Christians is in a cultural tidal wave of that not to get caught up in it. And so we get together, so we spur each other on to real love in the face of what this culture calls love, to good deeds, to looking out for others in the face of a culture that increasingly says look out for number one, and to encourage one another to keep at it, even when, and especially when, the culture arounds us, around us continually makes us feel I don't know, out of place and backwards by trying to live for the things that we live for. My, my thought is that as we continue to move forward in the kingdom calendar, the authentic Christian life is going to look stranger and stranger and stranger. It's going to kind of stick out more and more and more. And when you're sticking out more and more and more, you want some friends around you need to be encouraged when everybody's saying really that's how you're living that's 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 ridiculous come on it's 2017 for pete's sake this isn't the first century a.d you need some others to say no no you you stick to it you keep at it you keep being that kind of of godly man or that kind of godly woman. You hold to those standards in your relationship. You continue to raise your children in that way even though people think you're nuts. You continue to make the choices with your life, with your investments, with your finances that don't make sense because if we don't get that encouragement, it's easy to say, you know, just let the tidal wave wash me away. So we get together. We don't give up meeting together in the face of of a world that wants to push us away from God because we need the encouragement of the brothers and sisters that are here. So that's why we do it. Now, how we do it varies from place to place, and we'll talk about some of that stuff 
over the next several weeks. But the why, you know, in the face of an article like Donald Miller's that says, look, I don't learn by lecture. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I, I got to learn by doing it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't learn by lecture. Maybe you're, I, I'm a visual learner. You can talk to me and, and it kind of sounds like this. Wah, 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 the old Charlie Brown. It doesn't register. Like sometimes Denise will be telling me something. Let me read you the instructions. She'll start reading. I say, stop, don't read them to me. I, I can't, it won't work. I got to see them. If I look at them, I got them. Maybe that's you. And we're in an auditory learning environment because I'm talking. And it might sound to you like, wah, 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 wah. Can I get an amen? No, okay. Maybe you're a kinesthetic learner. You're like, I don't like to just sit here. I need to move. I need to do. Don't, don't tell me how to do it and don't show me the instructions. Just let me figure it out myself. Any, any men? Any men here? Yeah. Now, I get that. We learn differently. And, and a lot of times we look at why do we come here? This was my father-in-law's pet peeve, I got to say. So I'm going to blame him. Is that okay? He used to say that it would frustrate him when people would talk about, well, I don't get fed. Or I didn't get fed in church. That, that we come here to get fed. And here, here's what he would say as we had these conversations. He'd be like, okay, I get that. You should get fed in church. But that shouldn't be your only meal. should be eating regularly. Did anybody have breakfast? Anybody going to have lunch? Anybody that had breakfast and lunch planning to have dinner? <laughs> Amen. We are Baptist. And tomorrow morning when you get up, who's planning to have breakfast? And lunch? And dinner? So what you're telling me is that the only time you eat isn't at the stuff that's on the table in the breezeway, right? You eat regularly, consistently, because you know you need the nourishment. So the only time you eat shouldn't be Sundays at 9.30-ish when I get up and talk, preach, teach, or as I like to call them, my sermonic musings. You should be eating regularly. Because the only time you eat is when you come to church on Sunday. No wonder you're so hungry. No wonder on Thursday you're like, I'm not fed. Interesting thought. And we need that encouragement. We need to open the word together. We need that, hopefully the, the meat of the word, as it were, given to us as part of this. But it's not the only place we get it. And it's not, according to this passage, the primary reason that we're encouraged or told to not give up meeting together. It doesn't say, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing because you really need a sermon a week. It says you, what you need is encouragement. Can anybody say, this week you could have used some encouragement. It's okay, you're, you're among friends, anyone? Here it is. This is a place to get it. Oh, and here's a crazy idea. It doesn't have to just be Sunday at 9 either. You can get it anytime if you have that friendship among believers. Some people come Sundays, but they also come to our Bible studies. Our ladies' Bible studies are starting up. This is how I work a commercial into the sermon. 
on this Thursday. Thursday morning study, Thursday night study, starting up. We'll talk more about those in a few minutes. You can come to that. The guys, we're, man, we're going to start up sometime. Because we're always a little behind the ladies. You know, we have opportunities like that where you can get together and, and in a smaller group find this kind of encouragement, find this kind of spurring on to love and good deeds. So why do we do it? Why do we get together? Because we need each other. Church is called a lot of things in Scripture. Um, I wrote some down. Church is called a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Yes, I know what time it is. I'm going to be quick, I promise. That was for Denise in case she's watching. <laughs> now you are the body of Christ. And listen to this phrase, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And each one of you is a part. Who does that leave out? No one. He talks earlier. Now, you're made up of many parts. Can the foot say, ah, you don't need me anymore? Can the eye say, ah, I'm not as important or you're not as important? No, we need each other. We're a body. We're, we're called a, a household, the household of faith. It assumes a togetherness. We're called uh, a fellowship, Acts 2.42. Now, fellowship in Baptist world means I get it. I don't think that's what the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, means. It says they devoted themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Daily they met together. Why? Because they needed encouragement. They needed to be spurred on to love and good deeds. They needed each other. Why do we do it? Because I need you. Because you need each other. Because we are not in this alone. God didn't intend for your Christian life to be just a personal relationship where nothing else matters and nobody else is a part. God made us for community because God himself is Trinity. God exists in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he intends that we exist in community of interdependence of encouragement, sometimes of rebuke and correction. But whatever it is, it's together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your wisdom, as you acted in history in ways that we needed through the person of Jesus by his sacrificial death, by opening the way, by tearing the curtain, in half by giving us access that we could approach the Holy of Holies. We could enter with confidence into your very presence that you also knew we needed each other. That we needed not just the, the promise of a God who we cannot see, but the flesh and blood of a brother and sister in Christ who we can see and touch and pray with and listen to and hear from doing the very things that we're told to do to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to encourage one another, especially as we see the day approaching. May we be that kind of a body. May we be that kind of a people that sees our need for one another, that sees that in the other parts of this body that is our church, 
that when we function together, we function best. God, today, if there's someone here who's not part of your church, of the church universal, who's not part of your body, who has not received the gift of salvation through the life and death and resurrection of your son, may today be the day they turn in faith to repent of their sin and receive you as Lord and Savior. God, I thank you that you still call us to yourself. You still save and redeem and heal and forgive. And may, Lord, today that be evident among this body in this place. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.